Hey, welcome to another episode of On Taking Pictures, a weekly podcast where we discuss the art, science of making images, along with a healthy dose of opinion and maybe even a bit of sarcasm. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Sidoris from FadedBlur.com, and along with me is uh, New York editorial portrait photographer, Mr. Bill Wadman. Hello, Bill. Hello, Jeffrey. How are you today? I'm doing well. Good. I'm doing really well. Although there are some sirens that I hear, so I hope they're not coming for me. I think that they're fine. They're fine. <laughs> I appreciate your confidence. They're coming after you, but we're going to get, right. we, we gotta get the show you. done before they do. That's right. Uh, so uh, actually another, another interesting week. Yeah. In, in the world of photo and, and such. It always seems to be, doesn't it? Yeah. Just yeah. when you think it's going to get boring. Yeah. Something um, else comes up. I, you know, I saw something today. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, you, you think 3.6 million is too much to pay for a photograph? <sighs> well, it's not nearly as much as people play for the uh, Gursky photographs, which is like, what, six or seven million? Right, right. Yeah, uh, just a story out of out of Canada today. Um, it's a it's Canadian artist Jeff Wall uh, recently sold this photograph. It's a it's a like a, a, a recreation of a war image um, shot in studio, uh, and the thing sold for three point six million. Yeah, I think it was his friend or his parents or something. <laughs> you know, I don't think my parents would would kick down that much even if they had it, it for it, me you know it was it was a canadian auction and he is a canadian photographer so maybe it's some sort of insular i don't know i i'm not a huge fan of jeff wall's work i'm sure he's you know loved actually no it's in new york city isn't it christie's yeah, in christie's yeah 3.6 million you know the art world has gotten out of control all of those gursky prints which recently broke all these records and things it's Photography is an interesting thing when it comes to the art world and selling prints because there in most times there is no original, especially nowadays with digital, right? Um, that, that if you were a painter, you paint this canvas and that is the object where in photography, you take the picture and there's a negative or there's a file on a computer and then you print it out and that's the object, but sure. that there's nothing to stop you from making 14 million of the exact same thing. Uh, and some photographers don't even do the whole edition thing. They just print as many as they want to print and they sell them and they say, you know, suck it up if I end up selling more. Um, right. But it's also a place where rich people put money uh, with a lot of paintings and things lately. Uh, rich people will say, buy some Van Gogh for 40 million because the art world has been, uh, has been going up way more than, say, the stock market. So for them, they see it as a good investment. Right. Um I don't know. I, th this stuff gets crazy. I mean, what is the value of art? I mean, that's, that's a deep thing that's way beyond what we're talking about. Yeah. And, and way out of most people's league. Yeah. It gets, it gets sort of silly. I mean, it, it, it flows back into the whole art world. I mean, you and I had a discussion about this recently where I mean, so much of the art world, it's all about hype. It's right. all about, who you know and how you know that person and why they think that you're avant-garde right now at this moment or you're special or you're different um, when almost everything has been done before. Uh, I, you know, it kind of upsets me sometimes because as an artist myself and, and you as an artist, you know, I, I can't speak for you. We can, you know, see how you feel about the same thing, but I try to make my work, I try to put it out there, and I try to be authentic about who I am and what it means to me, and I'm not 
going overboard on it being something more than it is, which is a photograph. Um, or, or you being anything more than you are. Anything and I think more that's than a guy where who the takes line is becoming, yeah. yeah, it's becoming more and more blurred. It becomes the whole celebrity artist sure. thing. Sure. Um, it's the same thing with celebrity chefs, you know, is Mario Batali the best chef in the world? Of course not. I'm sure there's a lot of better chefs, but I'm sure he makes a lot of money because he's a celebrity chef, you know? Right. He's a brand. Um, right. And, and that's, that's, and it I seems th- to be, that's the goal is, is becoming yes. a brand. And I'm sure that, look, th- this is, this has happened in the art world for the last hundred years, I'm sure. Uh, but I think that it's accelerated lately. And I think that people, I don't know, try to put on a show in order to get noticed so that their work gets noticed. But, you know, if, if, if they are a hundred percent, their work is 60% and they're 40% show where I try to be 95% work and 5% show. Sure. But maybe that's why I'm not big in the art world. You know, I don't, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's yeah, the game. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting argument. I mean, would, would you sell more work, more prints, get bigger commissions if you were more of a persona than a person. Right. I, I don't know. I, I, but it seems like there are an awful lot of people out there trying to be noticed for the sake of trying to be noticed rather than say, hey, look at the work. Well, and, it's, it, and it's across the board. It's art, it's music, it's film, it's television. Well, it's like all of these actresses who put out singing albums, you know, where they're singing and stuff. It's like, wait, what? You're an actress. You know, there's no way that you, there's no way that you, as this model, got the job as a model except for the fact that you're Mick Jagger's kid or whatever it is. You know, there's, right. it's like there's the celebrity side of it, which has very little to do with the substance side of it. Um, and then the whole meritocracy question is a whole other thing. You know, should, do, do the best artists actually become the ones that become popular? No, of course not. Uh, there's way more in that equation. Um, or do for, they for even better do the or for worse? Yeah, or, or yeah, you know, do they I put know, in, you know, somebody like Damien Hurst, who has armies of people that are out there making his work, or Warhol for for yeah. that matter. I mean, you know, it's like the whole Warhol thing is fascinating to me. Like, I, I think sitting down late at night and discussing whether or not if if you had the idea for the work and you worked with the people who made the work, is it then your work? And the whole manufacturing art and those are all very interesting questions. But mm-hmm. I don't particularly think that Warhol's output is actually interesting in any way. Like, there's a few pieces that I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea. But for the most part, I'm kind of like, okay, the idea behind it's interesting, but it's not interesting. So you, you, you're, you're more of a fan of, of the ideality, not the execution. When it comes to Warhol, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, him and uh, uh, Basquiat, like, peeing on things. Like, I, th- come on. You know, you're just, you're doing that just to see if somebody takes the piss out of you and, and calls you on it. Right. You know, you're, you're not doing that. No pun. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know. So look, you know, if Jeff Wall can get $3.6 million for his paint, for his photograph, uh, I mean, they don't say how, do they say how big it was or how many there are? Maybe it's a single print, you know, it's and, one of two copies that exist. Okay. There you go. Uh, I don't know about size, but it's, it's one of two. And it's considered his most important work. Maybe someday when I'm Jeff Wall's age and he is... Uh, oh, wait, here it is. Nope. 2.3 by 4.2 meter. 2.3 by 4.2 meter. So it's big, huge print. It's like 8 by 12 feet. And the dude's 65. So we're comparing ourselves against a guy who's 65 who's been 
a big photographer since the early 70s. I'm not comparing myself to him. He defined the Vancouver School. Did you know that? I did not know that. <laughs> what is the Vancouver School? Uh, I don't know, but uh, apparently it's a conceptual or post-conceptual photography school. A loose term applied to a group of artists from Vancouver starting in the 1980s. I, oh, yeah. Jeff Wall did that crazy picture of uh, Mimic where it's like the Asian guy and then like the guy with the... The guy's walking down the street and he's like making sort of the Asian slant eye thing, pulling his eye apart. Uh, I, I, his stuff, I don't know. That's not my, that's not and, my goal. And that's sold for millions too? It's a famous photograph. You've seen it huh. before. Um, I, you know, I had lunch with a girl today and, and she, she mentioned Nan Golden, who I, whose work I can't stand. But okay. you know what? Nan Golden is a big photographer. She's a famous photographer. So I can't, you know, who the hell am I to decide? Uh, anyway, it's just, it's, yeah, it's interesting. And that's, that's always a big question. Um, it, it becomes, it becomes a question of, uh, you know, what, what we want art to be in the 21st century, you know? Yeah. I, I think art, to be honest, I think art's lost at the moment. I mean, I I think a lot of people in the wilderness are lost, like it's dead down a hole. I I think just lost in a, in the wilderness. I, I think a lot of people call themselves artists, which seems that i mean traditionally wasn't it someone else that should determine whether or not your your work is art i mean it isn't true. isn't calling yourself an artist kind of true but the, but the flip side of that is then you get into just a big popularity contest now but it, you know? isn't that where we are absolutely i mean i i there was just a, a thing that i put my work into and it was like uh get as many people as you can to click and you know vote for your thing and if you win it'll be it's like okay well if it's voting then if i have 400 million fans or friends or whatever or the kind of nerdy people who are on the computer all the time voting i'm gonna win regardless of whether or not my work is any good sure i mean it has nothing to do with the quality of your work it's right it's we're, we've become i mean and i think part of it's because of social media uh, but we're perpetually in high school now. Yeah. We're we're yeah. we're watching counters. We're watching clicks. We're it's true. You know, notice me, notice me, and you know, fifteen people liked my pictures in the Eloquence magazine on Facebook. So you know, therefore, it's important. Well, it's it's more important than the guy who got fourteen people. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the crazy thing, right? Uh, <laughs> and what does that actually do for me? Great, you know, my friends and family like the fact that my you know, why do I even bother putting it up there for some sort of satisfaction? I guess. Uh, but it, yeah, but, but then again, I mean, do, do you, okay. Nikki and I were just talking about this the other day when, when you're shooting, especially your personal stuff, because yeah. I, I think your personal stuff is where, um, I think anyway, you've grown the most and, mm-hmm. and you've kind of stretched the most, but do you, do you do that work with the idea that this is going to either get me more work or is there, is it just a means to an end or are you doing it for the process itself? Are you, are you exploring the work itself rather than I need to do this to get me here? I don't know. It's art is such a hard thing, isn't it? It is. I mean, cause at some point you, you, you sit in the studio or you sit in your apartment or, or your warehouse or garage or wherever it is that you're doing this stuff and you go, what the hell is the point? Yeah. Well, I guess the, I guess the point is making things that make you happy and mm-hmm. anything else that comes with it, whether it be uh, a, a way to make a living or 
um, uh, happiness that people see it and they tell you how much they enjoyed it, that kind of thing. I mean, that's the kind of stuff when you're lying on your deathbed, you're probably going to like more than the fact that, you know, you made money doing it. Right. Um, I, I, you know, there's, there's part of me that takes offense to the photographer who's like, Oh, you know what? Wedding photography is big right now. And I don't know anything about photography, but wedding is lucrative. Wedding photography is lucrative. So I'm going to go get a camera and call myself a wedding photographer, start taking pictures to make money. But I don't really care about photography. Like right. there, there's part of me that is offended by that. Or as somebody who care cares about, about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't care about weddings, but you know, I don't care about wedding photography either personally, you know, but I guess if people are into that, that's great. You know, more power to them. Um, but you know, that's the thing. The, the, the photographer, I mean, we know, we know a lot of wedding photographers and the wedding photographers that are really good. Oh, they, they love, love yeah. weddings. They're yep. genuinely happy for you. They're genuinely yep. happy to be there. They're genuinely, but there are a lot more of them out there who I don't think really care all that much and are just in it because it's the one place where you can make a respectable paycheck in photography now. Hmm. I don't know. That's it. Sometimes it seems that way. Maybe, maybe I'm looking through a certain color glass, but that's how it feels a lot of times. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's tricky. Did you see this, uh, article, uh, uh, perfect 10 magazine is suing Tumblr. Is that what's going on? Cause they sent takedown notices cause somebody oh, yeah, had been putting sent, up pictures. Half a dozen takedown notices and Tumblr didn't comply. Okay. So now they're suing Tumblr. Is that what's going on? Mm hmm. Uh, it's interesting. This is the whole, like, uh, what is it? Safe Harbor legislation, right? Which says that. It's not Tumblr's fault if somebody uses Tumblr to do something illegal, like put up these images. It's the person who put them up's fault. Right. The burden The right. burden is on you, the uploader. Because, I mean, at a certain point, if, if you can sue Tumblr, well, then Tumblr and Facebook and Pinterest will all be shut down tomorrow. Sure. Because what are they supposed to do? Watch every single image that goes up and find out whether or not it's legal or not? And play whack-a-mole with everything that goes up on their sites. I mean, that's an untenable economic situation. Um, now, at the same time, as somebody whose pictures have been spread around the internet once or twice, I understand the frustration with Perfect Ten Magazine, or that Perfect mm -hmm. Ten Magazine has with Tumblr. Um, but you know, but, but at that point, is it is it just one Tumblr account, or because it's been you know basically repinned? Re I mean, it's not pin but, right. but it's retumbled it's been shared retumbled tumbled. sure uh on you know Tumble. however many people how much time and energy is is tumblr supposed to put into or can they put into tracking down that yeah. particular image it's it's never going to happen what do you, you know then you get into the stuff with uh youtube where you can uh where youtube actually has machines that are listening to the audio on things to find out whether they're copywritten songs you know what i'm talking about Oh, it basically like a, does signatures like, that app for the iPhone, like yeah. Shazam. Or yeah, like, it's like it, Shazam it essentially. Out. And it does that okay. to everything you upload to YouTube. So if you use something that is copywritten, it takes it down. Huh? Uh, and this happens like, I, I know the guys like on Twit and some other like news shows complain about this because they'll play something that they see as fair use for newsworthiness and it'll get taken down because the machine doesn't know any difference, you know? Right. Um, it just, that because that becomes a meat cleaver when you need a scalpel. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's sort of ban hammer yeah. that, that just says, well, we're going to, we're not going to be selective about this. We're just going to ax everything. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. And it, well, that kind of falls back into the whole falling bear thing again. Uh, cause the falling bear kid, uh, apparently one 
not one, well, theoretically one. Apparently the, the magazine or the newspaper he worked for basically said, no, he owns the rights to the copyright uh, going forward and that we us saying we had the copyright is wrong. I mean, he's still not going to get paid. Yeah, he probably won't get paid, but at least, you know, the, the paper came up and said, okay, we can see that he's the rightful owner of the photo. Right. Which is in some ways the important part of this, right? It's not well, about it, that it photo. This- it's about the precedent it sets. This is their policy moving forward with with all student staff members, all photography, all writing, everything. Uh, you know, I don't exactly know. Let's let's see if we can find out. But it's it's an interesting. Uh, hey, look at him, Andy Duin. He's like this good-looking Asian kid. Look at that. Didn't know what he looked like. Uh, yeah, apparently he's an electrical engineering student. Blah blah blah. I mean, we had talked about this. Right. Uh, yeah, he says he doesn't even want any money. He's turned down all the offers. He simply wants acknowledgement that he owns the photo. Well, now he's got that. Well, That's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, really? Well, you know, it's kind of like, uh, not to get off photo topic, but the the American citizen guy who was taken in and tortured, like, uh, during all the 9-11 kind of stuff. Okay. And, uh, and he got out, and he sued John Yu. Is that the guy's name? The guy who was the uh, Bush administration uh, Justice Department legal guy who write all the memos that said they could torture people. Ah, wow. And he sued I, him. I don't know the story. Basically saying, like, you know, I want... He, he sued him for $1. Really what he wanted was just the fact that, like, this guy is not immune from all prosecution because he, you know, is some uh, uh, federal whatever. He's doing his duty, whatever. Um, and apparently there is some federal law that gives you immunity if you're doing like in the course of doing your duty, whatever your job is, as long as you don't realize the the rights you're taking away or some kind of thing like that. And mm-hmm. some some recent uh, precedent was set some uh, I think it was the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals basically overturned an earlier thing saying that you was complicit in this by saying that he's immune because he was just doing his job. Um, but I guess the point is that this guy this guy sued for one dollar. He wasn't looking for money. Just so it's on the books. He was looking for the fact that like you wronged me and, and, and here's I think you wronged me and, and I think you need to, yeah, somebody needs to say that this guy was wrong. Hmm. Um, so in the same way, I think that this, this bear guy, he just wanted to people to admit that it was his damn photo. You know what I mean? Like that this was, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, argument to make. And it's kind of, it's kind of cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, you uh, brought up this whole light leak issue in the, the 5D Mark III. Uh, last, time. last time. Sure. And yeah, well, there, there's a fix now. Yeah. So apparently you were right. It wasn't the rear uh, screen. It was the top screen. Right. The top the top screen with all I your I was wrong. I, I apologize. Uh, and apparently, uh, what, what, what has Canon done? Uh, it's uh, electrical tape. Yeah, or or gaffer tape, right? One of the two, but yeah. it's it's just some, some black tape, piece over of the opaque bottom. plastic. Yeah, do what? A little piece of op- opaque plastic. Yeah, essentially. I mean, and on, on some level, you know, like you said, it doesn't need to be more than that. But you know, it, there are. Do you I'm want sure more people than that? Out there, do you want them to say, re-engineer it? Well, I, you know, thirty-five hundred dollars. You want it to be perfect. You don't want to know that it's you know put together with electrical tape. Well, you know what? It is. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, uh, it, but it's you know it's such a it's such a minute problem. Yeah. Did, did you did you ever read Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Yes. Okay. 
There's a there's a scene in the book where his friend John, I guess the the the, the uh, protagonist, the narrator, uh, drives some kind of Honda bike or something like that. And his friend, I think his name is John, drives this fancy BMW bike, and his front handlebars were loose. This is one of my favorite books. The reason I bring it up, um, his front handlebars were loose. And uh, he basically needed a shim, right? He needed another piece of metal in between how you tighten it down and where, you know, in the handlebars, because no matter how tight you made it, the handlebars were still too loose. So you needed sure. a shim in there to, to open it up. And so the guy was like, you know what? I have a really great idea. Goes over, takes a beer can, cuts the ends off it, cuts it down the middle, and he's got this strip of aluminum. And he like pulls the label off it because in the book it was like back in the 70s when they still had labels. Sure. And he brings over this piece of essentially aluminum, strip of aluminum, and says, here, perfect. This will fit. We can put it in here. And it's ideal. And the John, the guy whose bike it was, was like, no, no, no. Like, I, I can't do that. This is a $25,000 BMW motorcycle. You can't put a beer can in there to fix it. And 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 the narrator's point was... This is if you went and talked to some German engineer, he would say, "Well, well, it's a piece of aluminum and it's it's iodized iodized aluminum or whatever it is, so it like it's not going to rust and all this kind of stuff. Like it's it's somewhat soft, so it's going to squeeze in there nice and push back. Like in in almost every respectable way, it is the perfect fix." Right. For it. This the is exactly what he would do. All perfect. Exactly. Like this is what the German engineer would do. He might just do it with a brand new piece of aluminum versus a thrown out beer can. Where, you know, so when it comes right down to it, it's perfect. But the person who owns the bike or the camera in this case doesn't want to hear that, you know. Right. Because it looks like a piece of black tape in their in their camera. I you know, I, I don't know. I go back and forth on that. I personally I don't care because I I would never spend $3,500 on a camera only to presume that I had any know-how whatsoever to be able to open it up and assess any sort of fix or, or I, mean, I, I just wouldn't do it. Well, look, have you ever opened up like a, an Apple laptop or something? I mean, there's all kinds of black tape in there to, for, you know, EF sure. stuff. I mean, there's, you know, I opened up a friend of mine had a, one of those polycarbonate white iMacs. And uh, his hard drive died, and, and he he doesn't have any money. He works at a cafe down the corner. And uh, he brought it over, and I was like, all right, I'll take a look. And he brought it over, and my friend Dan, who used to be a Mac genius, was just like, oh, man, like that's like the third worst Mac ever to work on for all these different reasons. So I got out the iFixit directions, and I popped the screen off. And all around the screen was this black essentially like the sheet of black uh i'm sure it was like foil but plastic on top kind of mm -hmm. mylar and it was glued with like this sticky tape all the way around the edge of the entire computer and around the edge of the screen but you had to take this off so that you can remove the screen to get to the hard drive which was underneath all of it it's wow. you know sometimes apple engineering just blows my mind how backwards they design things they look, you shut your mouth. They, you don't say that. They look amazing from the outside, but like sometimes they do things internally that are like, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, like what is wrong with you? <laughs> like even, even the new, uh, the new 
uh, iPads and stuff. I mean, these things are glued together. You can't get them apart without heat guns and all kinds of stuff. It's like, so how is that at all recyclable or reusable or, you know, you're supposed yeah. to just throw all this stuff out into the waste, uh, whatever. Anyway, so the point was is that this beautiful iMac, which was gorgeous inside, the entire inside was just this big, giant slice of plastic. Just, yeah, don't look on the inside. Look away. Yeah. And so, you know, I ended up tearing it a little bit when you're trying to get it off because it's impossible to get off in one piece. I'm sure when people work on it, they just rip it off and I'm sure they have replacement ones that goes on or something. Uh, And I pulled it out and I put a new hard drive in and I got it all working and I put it back together as best I could. And he says it runs great. So, you know, I'm not whatever. The point is, is that like if there was a piece of black tape in my camera now from the factory from before this problem surfaced problem in air quotes, I wouldn't know it. Right. You know, right. I took some pictures today at lunch and I realized this camera takes really nice pictures. Yeah, I think you have uh, commented on that much more than you did. I mean, I think you're 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 more impressed with the output of this camera than you were with the 5D just from what we've talked. Yeah, but for some reason. I... 5D Mark II, I should say. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had all three, I guess. Um, it's It's not that it's better. In some ways, I'm disappointed by it. In very small ways, and it's not a big camera review thing, but uh, like I've been shooting at 30, uh, like 3200 and 1600 and stuff in low light, and it, th- th- there is, there's noise, and it's not always really beautiful noise. Um, but not that I'm like some event photographer who's shooting in available light all the time. Uh, it's, it's fine. It's just, it's like I, I, I look at the, 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 f- if you back up and look at the shots, like just full screen and not one-to-one, they look really nice. Um, but there are, it's not really any better than the Mark II. Maybe. I don't know. I, I mean, I've only shot a handful of big shoots with it, you know, where I've actually looked at the files. And I mean, they're fine. And if you printed them big, I'm sure they'd look great. But you always want every new generation to be like a leap better than the last, you know? So what do you think? I mean, if you... I think these now cameras are flattening out. What do you think the big the big leap is for you over the Mark II? Over the Mark II. I mean, besides the the better low light, or is sure. it better? Sure, uh, it's. I guess yeah, it's better in low light. The autofocus is theoretically a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, but you're a single point guy, so it doesn't. But really I'm a single point guy, and that that single point is better. But it's not monumentally better i mean i guess it is monumentally better but it's not that i'm doing stuff that involves really heavy duty autofocus um i will know i will note that like with some of my lenses i really need to go in and do you know i don't know if nikons have this but canon cameras you can put on a lens and actually do an autofocus offset for that particular lens yeah it's it's uh af fine tune okay it's called so there's a similar function in canon cameras where which is always like a tricky thing to test and set up because you know sometimes you don't know if you're actually focusing in the right spot to do the test but um some of my lenses including my 51.2 which is very expensive very high-end very heavy lens uh focuses it back focuses just a scooch um, so I need to go in there and deal with that because at 1.2, you got to be right on or it's useless. Sure. You know, um, so that's not a, f- a function of the camera being wrong. It's just, you know, a little thing. I per- I don't really like the power switch being up by the mode dial because it means that if you turn the camera off, you need both hands to turn it on. Where with the old camera, the the uh, the power was down by the lock switch down sort of like lower body by the thumb wheel. Mm-hmm. 
where now you actually have to hold the camera and then get your other hand to click it onto on. Uh, which See, is I, I really like Nikon's, Nikon's where it's around the edge. Yeah, where it's, a, it's around the, the shutter button. I <sighs> yeah, like that. Yeah, but the one thing I like about not having it there is that then the shutter button is a much simpler thing and there's not a whole bunch of stuff around it on a Canon camera. Uh, and again, this is, you know, we could go back and forth for six years about why we like one or the other and people like the ergonomics there's i tend to like the ergonomics of canon but i've shot canon for the past five years so sure um i i'm not really one to make comments but uh, the viewfinder's a lot better the shutter's a lot faster you know the shutter's like snap um it's got it actually sounds a little, nicer it's got a little bit of a metallic sound to it too it's like mm-hmm. a chink um the it the, does, the, it does the, the mark the always shooting. sounded like it was going to fall apart to me yes it does yeah it did I mean, it uh, sounds like the, the the mirror is just going to fall out of the front of the camera. Yeah, it sounds like the mirror, like they borrowed it from the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles or something and like just stuck it in there. <laughs> hey, did you see uh, DP Review's piece on the 800? Uh, yes, I did. Or I, I skimmed it. You skimmed it? Um, Anything stand out for you? Uh, it supposedly is is a better sensor than I initially gave it credit for. It's supposed to be really nice. Uh, one point that they do make, though, is that you will really only see its advantages if you have perfect technique and gr- amazing lenses and are using a tripod and are at high shutter speed, that you're getting to the point where really, really minor things in in uh, camera shake or focus um, are much more important to the overall image quality than the sensor. The sensor is better than most of the stuff you're going to put projected on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that way about the, about a 20 something megapixel 5d as well. I mean, there's right. plenty of pictures that I take that are not pixel sharp and that's because it was out of focus or I was shooting at slow shutter speed or the shaker, what, what have you. Um, but, but at some point, I mean, pixel peeping has just, it's gotten, gotten so completely ridiculous. out of control. Yeah, yeah. 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 But there's plenty of people. I mean, you know, this is, this is the topic that comes up all the time is that the people, how many of the people who were who were on forums and talking about this stuff and talking about it and talking about it and and getting into big giant flame wars about Canon Nikon and okay Nikon's got 36 megapixels how many of you are actually taking pictures how many of you are printing your pictures how many of you are printing your pictures big enough to where you'd notice the difference between 22 and 36 megapixels right. you know uh even if even on the DP review if you go look you can go to the the part where you can put two images up next to each other. They have this test shot that they do, and you can say, "Oh, I want to see the D D eight hundred here and the five D Mark three here, or the five D Mark two, or the D seventy, or whatever it is." Right? You can put these cameras next to each other, and if you do that and you move around, yeah, it's bigger. Yeah, there's slight bit more detail, but it's not like, "Oh, I can read that text where I couldn't read it before." Mm-hmm. You know, if anything, sometimes it's kind of like, oh, I can read that text, but actually it kind of seems like it's smaller over on the 20 something megapixel, but I don't know that there's any more information in the big one. Right, right. You know, you get to the point where you're just blurring across pixels. Uh, And and that's the case with all this kind of stuff. We talked a little bit about the 800 versus 800E. Uh, um, I I, I don't understand why, why release two physically different models uh prestige mm. i think uh, so for but there's the, only like a 300 dollars difference between them i mean how much yeah. prestige do you get for 300 bucks well for, for those who don't know the 300 the 800e has no anti-alias filter i think is what what the distinction is 
uh, an anti-alias filter for, for those who don't know all this stuff. Uh, so digital sensors are not a single pixel. It's not like there's one pixel in the upper left-hand corner that grabs red, green, and blue. They have what's called a Bayer pattern. So there's a, a red and a green and a blue and then another green. I think there's like two greens for every red and blue because of the sensitivity of the light frequencies. Um, and they're, they're sort of next to each other. And part of what your camera does or your raw uh, uh, conversion software is takes those sub pixels they're called and merges them into a single pixel. Uh, but when, when you're doing this and you are taking pictures of something that has weird patterns that are smaller than the pixels are, you can get, uh, more a patterns across, uh, it's hard to explain that in, in things, but go look it up on the internet. <laughs> You'll see what I mean. Uh, pattern search, you sort of get artifacting essentially, uh, things look the way, not the way they actually look, but because of the way they're hitting the sensor look strange. Usually it happens in like striped shirts or shiny stuff and you get color fringes and all this kind of stuff. One of the things that people have done to fix this is they actually put this thing called an anti-alias filter in front of the sensor, which effectively blurs the image before it hits the sensor so that it blurs it across these pixels in a way that makes it so more is doesn't more. It doesn't happen. That's the gist. However, when you get up to super high megapixel cameras like this D800, uh, there are some who argue you don't that that moiré doesn't happen all that often, and what you're losing is the sharpness in the image. And I'd rather have the sharpness than have this problem eliminated when the problem doesn't exist all that much. So high-end cameras like the uh, all of the digital medium format digital backs do not have. Uh, anti-alias filters the leica m9 for instance does not have an anti-alias filter um so so the the canon you can actually or the nikon d800 you can actually get it without the anti-alias filter for an extra what'd you say 300 dollars? Yeah, it's 300 bucks extra for three so it's more expensive to get it without than with than with yeah yeah it's it's a prestige thing uh i mean for people who are doing really really high-end stuff where they're doing um if you're doing studio photography, still life, uh, or some in some ways even fashion stuff, people think that you'd rather have more per pixel sharpness, and I'll worry about the more if it happens. It, it, I think that you know a little bit of really low radius sharpening on an image that does have an anti-alias filter, and you get pretty close to not having it. You know, you're just having a little sharpness afterwards, uh, which is you know I guess fake sharpness. I, I've never really had a problem with it. I mean, I've never had an image that I printed so, so big that I looked at it and said, you know what? If I didn't have an anti-alias filter, this giant print would look that much better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing where you're getting down to the equivalent of, oh, you know, the, the, this film wasn't perfectly flat. And so therefore it's a little, you know, a little soft. One across corner the frame. Is, yeah. is slightly distorted because. Yeah. You know, and these are all the funny thing is, Jeffrey, is that these are all the kinds of things that people are adding to their images. You know, I add grain to almost all of my images. Like my final, like retouched, fancified all, all images. All of your Instagram shots that you post. All of my Instagrams. No, like my real <laughs> things for magazines and stuff. I am adding grain at, at, at towards the end of the process. Do you notice it in print? Is it, is it obvious to you if, if you don't? Um, you personally, you know, what? I've never, I've never printed the same thing with and without, I mean, except for like at home, I don't know. I, I like the way it looks, you know, what it is, it's sort of, um, there's a dithering kind of thing 
know what dither mm-hmm. is? So it's like, you know, you get down towards the noise floor and it's like, if you, if, if, if things can go between all the way down to such a low level that you can hear them actually switch off, that's much more distracting to you than if it fell into like a noise floor. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in yeah. some ways, like I, my, my images, I like the fact that the tonality across say somebody's skin. Okay. It's not perfect where you get sort of aliasing because like the 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 skin texture is just a little bit different here from there you know put a slight wash of grain over it and it kind of like blends the whole thing together it's kind of like taking like 220 sandpaper to something uh for me uh, so you and has know, your has your method changed you do it the same way you always did because i mean um, we've talked about this before uh you mean how i actually do it yeah has your process changed at all no i you know i in fact i use the same grain image and I, I do an overlay and bring it to like around 50%. So I'm, I'm actually like sitting grain on top of the image that I've already finished. And it actually, you, you know, you lose a little scooch of light, like a 10th or, tw- you know, 20% of a stop of light. Cause you're actually sitting stuff on top that's darkening parts of it. Um, but I, it hasn't, I've never had to like really compensate for that, but it's, it's, I like the way it looks, you know, so it's just kind of funny that people are looking for this per pixel sharpness, per pixel sharpness. I mean, the amount of people who need this stuff for giant fashion stuff or advertising stuff. I mean, okay, that's fine. But, you know, I do a lot of that kind of stuff and I put grain, I add grain to my images. Um, some of this stuff nowadays with digital, it's, it's too clean. It's too good or it's too perfect or, or, or the highlights are, are blown out in such a perfect way that is distracting to me and I'll actually go in and, and kind of blur out the highlights that are blown out so that they blend better with the rest of the image. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's like you're, 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 you're constantly trying to take something. It's the same thing with, with the recording world in, in audio recording, right? People, people have these digital recorders, which have gotten better and better and better. And now to the, they're to the point where the, the dynamic range is so huge and the frequency response is so huge that they're beyond what the analog recording gear was. So now they started to model in ways to make it sound more like analog by having it pushed back with a compressor at the top or at the bottom. So they kind of like holds the whole thing up a little bit. And I find myself doing the same kinds of things with digital images in many ways, trying to make them look more filmic and, and not in the, like, I'm going to stick a filter on it and make it look like a Polaroid way. Right. But in a part of what made film special were these imperfections and were the fact that it was a, a dynamic partner in the process of you taking pictures that, that film had a character about it that Digital is very cold, mm-hmm. and and I I hate to say that because then people are going to say, oh, see now you 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 admit that digital sucks. It's not that it, at it, all. It doesn't suck, but but the technology is fairly agnostic when compared yes. to film. Yeah, the the te- the technology doesn't care about your darn picture. You know, right. uh, I used to have I used to have a um uh, a thing up on my on my walls from some Roger Black book, and he's like, you know, the web doesn't care about your dumb design. Like people just want the information. Right. Um, and so in the same way, it's like your, your camera doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's digital cameras are, are much more, uh, 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 scientific about the way they measure light. You know, they're, they're not organic. And I know that's part of what people love about film and why they keep shooting film. But I think that with some post-processing and some work you can get, I, I try to imbue my digital images and make them feel more like film 
mm-hmm. without making them look kitschy like film. I just want to bring some of what made film great right back into it's, the it's world. It's sort of tool versus instrument. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and and I think I think you know and that doesn't that doesn't mean making it look like like you know putting a film filter over it. It's but it's sort of uh taking what's what was good about film and trying to bring those qualities into digital images. And I think that that's, there's something to that. And I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I, I definitely think there's something to that. Uh, we put up a story on, on faded and blurred this, I think today, um, place in San Francisco called photo booth. They're creating tintype portraits. Now you like, you can walk in uh, 60 bucks and about 20 minutes later, walk out with a, a one of a kind tintype portrait. I would do it. I would do it. Yeah. In fact, next time in, I'm in San Francisco, I'm going to go do that. Yeah. Uh, um, because of your article. But again, I mean, th- th- this guy or girl, I don't, I don't know if it's guy or a girl guy, uh, guy is, is, is much along the same lines as the, uh, who's the guy with the big truck? Uh, Ian, What's uh Ruder Rudder? I'm Rudder, butcher yeah. his name. Uh, you know, in so much the same way. I mean, it's 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 a niche. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he, he's fa- he's found something. Not every photographer can do tin types or you know albumin prints or or uh, um, what's it called? Uh, uh, oh, I forget the word. You know, not everyone can do this old time processes. That these processes themselves are 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 something interesting and make the images a sure. certain way. And people but like what, the imperfections. What's interesting is the response. I mean, this this guy is saying this guy at photo booth is saying that there are days when he's doing sixty portraits a day right. uh, of ten types. Yeah, you know, which is a good and, day. That's uh, what sixty by sixty, which thirty six hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Ian. But then again, how, did, much, how uh, much are is how much are the uh, <laughs> the the stuff he needs to do it? The materials. Well, I mean, you're you're four by six, so you're not nearly as much as uh, Ian just did a, a print. It was a four by five foot wet plate. Yeah, collodion. That's the word I was looking yeah. for. Four by five yeah. feet. I mean, that's an enormous. You know, I, uh, Meg, my friend Meg, is a photographer. Meg Wachter, who has a. Uh, well, I'll put her. We'll put her stuff in the show notes. But she, uh, I'm having dinner with her tonight. But she uh, gave me a few years ago a little tin type kit where it's got all the chemicals in there and you mix them up and you go through the whole process. And I've never done it just because it looks kind of daunting, but mm-hmm. it might be an interesting little project to, to just see the process. You know, I find that yeah, stuff I'm, fascinating. I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. I yeah. am. I am. Was it, I think it was you that said though, you were, you were somewhat daunted by, by dressing the same way that you had to dress if you were cooking meth. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> Right. Doesn't it feel that way though? <laughs> it does. You know, you've got the, the respirator and you got the suit. And, you know, yeah. There's at least a little bit of that in there, uh, which, which is scary. I mean, I think you can, I mean, you can, you can dumb it down a little bit from that, but the process is very nasty. Sure. You know, all these things are, are, are but nasty. But I love, I love the. I'd be, you know what, if I was going to get interested in, I mean, I had a big, I went and saw a guy talk about platinum printing last year. And the neat thing about platinum printing is that you don't really need a dark room because they're contact prints, right? It's really about sticking your negative on the paper, putting it under some light, taking it out and, and sticking in some chemicals. And you can actually do this on a much smaller scale. You don't need an enlarger in a fancy, fancy dark room. You could do it in your kitchen theoretically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought it was very, very cool. And, and then I, you know, there's, there's guys out there who, uh, do daguerreotypes, you know, um, which is a whole other crazy process, very chemically intensive process. Yeah, I don't want to get blown up while making photographs. 
Um, <laughs> but you know, Chuck Close did these amazing daguerreotypes of uh, some one of those you know super hot models. I think it was Kate Moss. And is, and is Kate Moss super hot? Well, she was when he was taking the pictures. <laughs> And now the thing is, is that then you get into the question of, okay, well, Chuck Close wasn't actually doing the daguerreotyping. He got this guy who's like the guy in daguerreotype to come in and actually do that work for him. And he, I'm sure, set it up and hit the shutter. Right. You know, so then you get into the question of like, okay, well, if he's not doing the hard work, is it really his? <laughs> well, but I mean, you could you could say that about film directors too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, no, is, is Ridley Scott less of a director because he's not? You know, hefting yeah. the camera around the set. I don't think so. Yeah, I guess you're right. But but I you know, film director is one thing. It's like Crutzen calling himself a photographer, but he doesn't. You know, but he's a camera operator. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of these pictures on this tin type thing are they're pretty they're pretty great pictures. But yeah. then again, we're seeing the best thirty or forty that he's taken. Maybe you know, maybe maybe there's a bunch that don't look all that interesting. You did, know, for sixty dollars, you, you get one shot. Uh, you blink. Did you ever see the Rob Kendrick? piece that NPR ran where he, he basically built a, a, a mobile tintype studio in a trailer that he towed around and, and drove, you know, 40 some thousand miles across the country, uh, documenting uh, modern day cowboys. I've seen his work, but, uh, I have not seen your, the particular show you're talking about. Fantastic series. Yeah. He charges a lot, thousand dollars for a print. It's art. Yep. It is art. <laughs> the average price for a tintype is three thousand dollars according to this guy for how now for wait where are you at what are you looking i'm at, at rob kendrick's site oh okay yeah uh yeah, the other guy is what 60 bucks right i mean this is five. what you're talking about i mean how many people would uh, there's there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't be willing to pay me 60 dollars to take their picture on a digital camera but they would on a tintype even though it's, i could i could take the digital file and arguably make it indistinguishable from the tintype digitally why is that less than? Because it's an object, I think. It's, it's I tend the to agree with you. I'm just, yeah. Of its kind. It's the only one that exists anywhere. Okay. What if I take a picture with my digital camera, work on it, print out one, and delete every copy of it? So the only thing that exists is this one print. Does that make it more valuable? I don't know. I, I guess that's one of the big questions. Yeah. I mean, that's that kind of goes back to, you know, our limited edition yeah. prints should they be more valuable than than open runs if, yeah. if you're paying for you know i i don't know i mean i i've got um some shepherd fairy pieces that are worth way more now than when i purchased them but they're not one of a kinds have you have you tried selling them no i i, I like his work i i'm, I'm a fan yeah, I, I know you are. i've thought about it but i i really like the pieces and i i was i was purposeful in in the pieces that i purchased so yeah. I, I really like the designs that i got uh you know it's, it's going back to old school kind of stuff i think we should talk about this week's photographer which i think is going to be yusuf karsh because i love karsh love karsh we we did a spotlight on him a little while back um he's fantastic fan of karsh so for those of you who don't know karsh was a portrait photographer uh from like the 30s until the 80s um, he shot everyone. He shot the really famous picture of Winston Churchill everyone's seen where he's, you know, leaning against the chair. He shot everybody in Hollywood that you've ever imagined, all these famous authors, all black and white. And he had this this way of lighting portraits where uh, they were hot lights, right? He wasn't using flashes back then. Right. 
Um, and he had these, he had these, uh, scoop lights and he used, basically he used cinema lighting, uh, to light people, uh, tended to use a lot of lights, like at least three, uh, or four. Um, and, and for his pictures of men, a lot of times there's very interesting sort of shadow, uh, uh creations going on on their faces and stuff. Um, it's interesting to me when looking through his books that his, his, his images of, men are much more interesting than his images of women, mostly because you can do things that are less flattering on men that make them look interesting. Mm -hmm. You try that on a woman, it just looks terrible. Yeah. His pictures of women are, are much flatter. Fairly ordinary. Yeah. 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 They're, they're usually like one big light, um, which is fine, but you know, it's a, it's a, a different kind of thing, but, uh, he's, he's really big. He shot absolutely everybody. He also used, um, uh, orthographic film, which is only, let me get this right. Uh, only uh, is uh, re- uh, respects uh, resolves from black or uh, green and blue light wavelengths, not red, so that his images have sort of a gritty quality to them, because they are tending to pull out defects in the people's skin and stuff. But it makes it so that these they have a lot more crunch to them. Their images. Yeah, it's it's almost like um, um, that that dragon effect yeah dragon where, dr d-r-a-g-a-n um okay. uh what's oh what's the filter there's a photoshop filter um i'll have to look it up and we can we can add it in the show notes but it, okay. it just really makes things very gritty oh you yeah you can yeah. see every it's pore, like a high, high pass detail. it's like a high pass uh, uh yes high pass sharpening like uh like uh yeah oh uh, yes but in black and white which is why it's so interesting uh, the trick is to not do it too much when you're doing it digitally. Um, but his stuff, yeah, he was, it was all film, uh, and he was around forever. Interestingly enough, a little, little side note, um, his brother was an obstetrician, was a doctor, uh, delivered babies and delivered me, his brother. Get out. Yeah. I was Karsh's delivered. brother delivered. You. I was delivered by Dr. Karsh. Get in, out. In Waterbury, Connecticut. I did not know that. Yeah. It's a cool little, little piece of tidbit of information. Huh. Um, so yeah, so he's, he's this super famous guy shot, of course, large format eight by 10. There was a really great, uh, show of his work up in Boston at the MFA, maybe two years ago where they actually had his eight by 10 in the case and the tripod and the whole thing that he used to carry. And I think a couple of his lights, then they had a bunch of like, you know, three rooms of his portraits, which were amazing and, and a great book that came with it. Uh, so if you ever want to, uh, look, get a nice photo book, this one is pretty amazing. Uh, how, how big was he printing? Uh, I think he did a lot of contact print stuff, Okay, uh, you know, um, which is, you know, these people didn't do stuff big. The reason why people back in the old, old days shot with big cameras is that their glass and their film wasn't very good. So they actually didn't get much resolution out of it. Um, this is like back in, back when he started, uh, People used 8x10 because they needed 8x10 to get the kind of resolution they needed to make an 8x10 print. Where nowadays, 8x10 film is so amazingly good that you can print the size of a wall. Uh, but that wasn't always the case back in the day. Um, so th- these people shot big. So he shot big, which is also, you know, you get an intimidating camera that makes people maybe think a little bit more about getting their picture taken mm-hmm. in some ways. Uh, maybe they react to you differently. Um, they give you more respect. Uh, when he, I, I, I love the story about the Churchill story of him snatching the cigar out of Churchill's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, Churchill scowls 
you know, it's, it's, it, he's, he's a pretty fascinating guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, he's Canadian back to the Canadian thing, him and him and Mr. Jeff wall. Uh, it's Canadian photographer day here on, on taking pictures. <laughs> is, is it Canadian photography? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So he shot like everybody in the, uh, who's who of, of, of the time. Apparently, um, of the hundred notable people of the century named by international who's who in the year 2000, Karsh photographed 51 of them. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. That's uh, six more than I've photographed. <laughs> uh, and he died. But, in, but I'm hoping to get those, those remaining six. He died in 2002. Uh, a guy I know named Randy uh, actually assisted him once, I think, or was on a shoot and watched him work. You can get these scoop lights and stuff still now, but the problem is then you're like have these huge lighting setups that you got to bring from shoot to shoot. Now, aren't they just incredibly hot too? Yes, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this is not, this is not a good time, but the, but the thing to look at in his pictures, like if you really like Dan Winters work, mm-hmm. I think a lot of what Dan Winters does, he kind of takes from Karsh, which is being very specific about what he's lighting and what he's not lighting. That is, it's as much about what you don't light as what you do light. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, there'll be a, a light that you can tell is just on, you know, Bogart's hands where he's holding a cigarette that is not right. anything else, you know, coming from behind or whatever it is, but that's not hitting the rest of his body. Cause Karsh thought that worked, but they're definitely very posed images. So something to think about. So go check out Yusuf Karsh. He is, uh, he's, he's one of my, uh, one of my favorites, one of my heroes. Um, I say we, uh, wrap this up a little bit. Okay. Uh, before we do, real quick, um, any any truth to the rumor you think mountain lion shipping in June? Mountain lion shipping in June. I don't know. We saw this on the rumor site. Seems awfully soon. It, it, it is awfully soon. But then there was another rumor, and, and Jeffrey and I have a little bit of interest in this because we are both uh, Hackintosh builders. Um, is that the that there will not be Ivy Bridge or USB three support until Mountain Lion? I read that yesterday, and then today I read that Mountain Lion will be coming out in June. So maybe it's that they're coming out with new systems that require Mountain Lion, and therefore they're mm-hmm. coming out. I mean, you said yourself you knew somebody who was playing with the developer preview three and said it was pretty solid. Yeah, it said it was. It's really you know, just as solid as, as Snow Leopard was. I won't say just as solid as Lion, because I think when Lion first released, it, it took to where we are now, dot three, to really kind of polish out some of the some yeah. of the hiccups. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope it's true. I mean, I just built a new nice little Ivory Bridge Hackintosh that needs uh, a new version of Mac OS, but that's a whole other... <laughs> You think they'll do it the same way just through the app store or maybe a USB key? Yeah. Somebody, I read somewhere that they're going to get rid of the USB key option. It will only be download. Wow. Um, Uh, There are so many. And for for those of you who don't follow a lot of the Apple rumors, there are rumor upon rumor upon rumor of of every single Apple product. True. Um, One of the interesting ones for this next generation of machines is that Apple's going to kill off uh, physical hard drives. Yes. And just go to solid state storage across the, the entire product line. Um, the problem, I mean, that's fine for boot drives, but it is not fine for storage. Right. Um, I, I, I know plenty of people who have, I mean, the, the lowest possible thing where you could actually feel secure maybe is maybe 256, mm-hmm. which But then you've got, you've got Thunderbolt arrays, uh, arrays coming out now yeah, too. Yeah, but your Joe Schmo, my mom, is not going to have a Thunderbolt array. 
but might have, she might download enough TV shows from iTunes that she, you know, needs more than 200 gigs. Right. You know, um, I think that, or pictures or, you know, everything else that she does, not my mom specifically, but somebody like my mom. So I think that it's, I think it's an interesting idea. I think it's fine for, uh, the MacBook air. I think that the MacBook air doesn't really need another drive, but saying a MacBook pro, maybe it's a tiny little SSD and then it's a, uh, you know, another hard drive that's in there is a secondary drive. Cause now the mm. SSDs they can put on these little, you know, like the MacBook air have them on these little tiny mini card things. Right. It's not even like a full two and a half inch thing. It's like this little yeah, card I mean, that clicks in. You could go a, a you could 80 have or a hundred gig yeah. SSD as a system drive Yep. and then throw in a, a, a 500. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that's more likely. Um, Hey, if anybody has any questions for us for next week, uh, we love answering questions. So you can send them uh, to us on Twitter. Uh, it's at Bill Wadman, which is W-A-D-M-A-N. And Jeffrey, I'll let you... Isn't there an at on taking pictures? And if not, could there be? Yeah, I guess we could do that. We could do that. Yeah. We'll Why set not? that up. We'll do on taking pictures. That uh, would be good. But in the meantime... Unless somebody's swiped it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to grab that. You know what's interesting about Twitter? How you have to have a different email account for each account? Yeah, yeah that's kind of... Yeah, well, but you've got... It's a little annoying. You've got it. I'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, But we like questions, so get back to us, and uh, and we will be back next week with uh, some more. Yeah, fun stuff. Uh, Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Catch you later.